Thank you, thank you. Praise the Lord for fathers. Uh, I want to indeed say happy Father's Day to all the fathers who are here, and happy Father's Day to everybody who has a father. And uh, we all have a father in heaven if we trust in Christ. And uh, so we praise God for fathers. Now, before we turn to Luke chapter 20, there's some gentlemen making their way down the aisle with Bibles. And so if you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand, and they will be sure to bring you one. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 20. And uh, Matt, you know what page that's on, brother? On page 879 in the Bibles being provided. Luke chapter 20, page 879. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible at home, but you would like a copy of the Bible, then please raise your hand and take one of those Bibles we're giving out there and take that as your own. We would love for you uh, to have a copy of God's Word in your home and to read it, not just when we gather on Sundays, but to read it each day and to uh, come to know what it teaches um, so that you might know uh, the, the Lord behind it. And so please take a copy of that. Luke chapter 20. Now, it used to be that fathers were, in some ways, almost synonymous with the idea of authority. Right? The old television shows told us things like father knows best, right? And dads were these persons who, even if they were a little bit sometimes aloof, uh, they were nonetheless revered and loved and treasured and respected. And it was because, in part, the father was one of those persons who not only loved, but also exercised authority. Well, something's happened in the last at least 30, 40, 50 years. Where just using sitcoms again, we go from father knows best to really a lot of sitcoms where father is hardly present. And a lot of sitcoms where the father is really the butt of most of the jokes. So even America's favorite television dad, he Cliff Huxtable, was someone respected in his home, but, but who was more and more accustomed to using humor than just real displays of authority. We've not only lost, in many respects, esteem for fathers, we've lost something more fundamental, esteem for authority. We have been taught to question authority. That's an interesting thing. Most people want authority, but few people want to be under it, don't they? We're suspicious of authority. We don't trust claims to power and control. And sometimes we have reason, don't we? We have seen all kinds of authority abused in our world and in our lives. We've seen parents mistreat their children. We've seen all kinds of bosses terrorize their employees. I mean, many of us think we work for Michael Scott in the office, don't we? We've seen government leaders become dictators. And we've even seen church leaders prey upon the people they were meant to shepherd. See, with so much misuse of authority, it's no wonder many people withdraw from it. 
And since at least the 1960s, American society, as I said, has questioned and challenged, opposed, and even ridiculed the very notion of authority. Rebels are seen as heroes. Mavericks are thought to be independent. Sticking it to the man has become a pastime, even when we're not quite sure who the man is. Just want to stick it to somebody. But no matter our attitude, the world remains filled with authority, doesn't it? Uh, individuals and institutions control our lives. We still report to bosses. We still pull over when officers turn, over, turn on the blue lights. We still obey our parents, even if imperfectly. And we still submit to our government and its laws. And we even from time to time submit to religious leaders and voluntary religious organizations like the church. But why? Why this submission? Why this suspicion? Why do we sometimes want it when we don't have it? And why do we fear it and mistrust it when others do? Our text this morning in so many ways, is about authority. It's about how Jesus views it. It's about how Jesus uses it. Our text this morning, then, is in so many ways a a defense of godly authority exercised correctly, understood correctly. So when we look in Luke chapter 20, in our sermon series which we have called Getting to Know Jesus, May we get to know something about how our Lord understood authority, why he embraced it, and why it's good for us when it's used correctly. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants 
and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief Pharisees sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection, And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your help with your word this morning to hear it with clear ears, to preach it true. We ask, O Lord, that you would help us to conform to what is here, to be shaped by it, to welcome it, to thrive in it. 
Grant us grace to become what we read and hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So you're looking at this text this morning, there are really three scenes. Uh, the first scene begins in verse 1 and goes all the way down to verse 26. That's where scribes and Pharisees and elders come to Jesus and have questions for Jesus, looking to trap him and to undo his ministry. The second scene begins in verse 27, and that's where another group of religious Jewish persons, the Sadducees, come to Jesus and likewise are attempting to, to trap him in things that he said. In the middle there, verse 19, is another place where scribes and, and priests come. Again, all with the same motive, to trap our Lord. And what you have as you go through this text is the Lord in confrontation with a number of different groups about authority. About authority. And we're going to see five things through this text. If you're taking notes, this is the outline this morning. Number one, you cannot question his authority. Verses one to eight. You cannot question the Lord's authority or challenge it. Number two, you cannot refuse his authority. You cannot refuse his authority, verses 9 to 18. And number three, no pun intended, you cannot trump his authority, verses 19 to 26. You can't top it. You can't raise a higher one. Number four, neither can you trivialize his authority. And number five, neither can you avoid his authority. So notice the first thing here. You cannot effectively question the Lord's authority. First one takes us back to the days before Jesus' death. The Lord, as you remember, has finally come into Jerusalem where he will be tried and crucified and resurrected three days later. It's a matter of days before those final events of his earthly life. And Luke just kind of casually tells us in verse 1 that this thing happened on one day. It's, it's almost as if this day began just like any other day. One day. And what do we find the Lord doing? One day, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. It cannot be stressed or highlighted enough that Jesus preached the gospel. I don't know how we would determine how important it is to preach the gospel. But surely one of the greatest proofs of the importance of the gospel is in the last days of his life, Jesus preached it. He's in the temple teaching the people, and he's in the temple proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the gospel. I don't know any other warrant, any greater warrant for gospel preaching than the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ preached the gospel. So he's in the temple holding forth. Now, the word gospel literally means good news. If you're new to Christianity or new to the Bible, you hear us talk about the gospel. The, the literal meaning of that word is good news. What was the good news that Jesus preached? It was simple, but it is indeed the most profound message in all of the universe. It's, it's plain as, as to be understandable by children, but it is profound enough to be plumbed and studied, its depths discovered for all of eternity. 
If you want, we can summarize it in four sentences. Four fat sentences. Here's sentence number one. The only true and living God made all people in his image and his likeness for them to enjoy him and to know his love. That's our purpose. We were created to know God and enjoy his love and to reflect his beauty to the world. Second sentence. Although mankind was made to know God and to reflect God's beauty and to enjoy his love forever, mankind has broken their relationship with God, all of us, through sin, and we now all deserve God's righteous judgment. God made us for himself, but we decided to live for ourselves. We rebelled against him and sinned against him, and for that, we deserve judgment. And here's the, here's the third sentence, though. To rescue mankind from his judgment and to bring us back into his love and the enjoyment of him forever, God made up for our sin by sending us a substitute who would obey his law perfectly, the very law that we broke, and who would then pay the penalty for our sin by taking our place in judgment. And that's what Jesus does, the Son of God, on the cross. He stands in our place, suffering our judgment. And three days later, he's raised from the grave for our righteousness and eternal life to bring us back to God. Here's the fourth sentence. Now to receive the new life and to be brought back to God in righteousness, God requires everyone everywhere to repent of their sins, which means to turn away from a life of sin, confessing it as wrong to God, and to place their trust their reliance upon Jesus Christ to be their righteousness with God, to take away their sins with God, and to follow him in faith as their Lord and Savior. And the promise is to everyone who so turns to Christ, believes in him, and follows him in faith, God grants eternal life and brings them again into his eternal joy and love. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus was preaching. That's the good news that he was proclaiming in the temple on that day. Now, what I want us to notice is the challenge that comes to him in verse 1. Notice here, Jesus is preaching the gospel, the most important message in the universe, and some religious people interrupted him. It's always the religious folks. See there in verse 1? The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, that group of people, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, that's the entire religious authority of Israel. They run the temple. They regulate the worship. They lead the people in worship of God. That's all the religious authority of Israel coming to Jesus in the midst of preaching the gospel, and they're basically saying, we didn't tell you you could do this. Who told you you can come in the temple and preach this message? They look around at each other. I ain't telling, I ain't telling me. Who told them this? You ever been to Israel and been on the 
temple area, the temple mound area is striking, is controlled by two authorities. The gate on the outside where the Wailing Wall is and entrance into the temple area is controlled by Israel. And you'll often see uniformed and armed soldiers, you know, inspecting folks and, and doing the security checks as people come in. But the area up where the temple is is controlled by Muslims. And it's a striking thing. And we were warned when we went there, for example, when you, when you dress, wear plain clothes. Don't, don't wear T-shirts with gospel things on them. Because they're people who patrol the, the temple area and you'd like to be escorted out or forced to change. And so you, you get this sense coming into this area, even today, that, that there's a, a sense, a palpable sense of authority being exerted there. And that was no different in Jesus' day. They come into the temple, they want to know, who told you that you can teach these things? And now the Lord has a little clap back for them. Look there in verse 4. So I'll tell you what, I'll ask you a question. I'm telling you, when Jesus asks you questions, just duck. Just confess, you know, repent, <laughs> say, I'm sorry. Verse 4, he says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They didn't see that coming. Notice what they did. They, they did what religiously conservative people do when they have a question. They held a conference, right? Verse 5, they discussed it with one another. They formed a little holy huddle. And, and you can see them with their heads bowed, talking, whispering. Every once in a while, one of them look back and make sure Jesus wasn't listening. They talk a little bit and... And say, now listen now, we, we stop now because if we say that it came from heaven, the obvious question is, why didn't you obey him then? But if we say John's baptism came from man, then there's a whole lot of people out there who knew that John was a prophet and accepted him as a prophet, and they might stone us. And what did they come back with? They came back with a Washington, D.C. election season answer. <laughs> Ah, uh, you know what? We don't even know, boss. We're going to take the middle route. Could be this, could be that. We don't know. We don't know. And Jesus responds very simply to him. Well, listen, I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from. It's a stunning scene. With one question, the Lord Jesus Christ exposed the spiritual emptiness of all of Israel's religious authorities. If you don't know where authority comes from, then you can't truly have it yourself. And if you don't know where authority comes from, you certainly can't question the Messiah. You certainly can't question the Lord Jesus Christ himself. By that one question, the Lord demonstrated that all of Israel's religious establishment was unqualified to question him in his religious authority. If they couldn't tell the difference between a prophet and just another man, how can they judge the Son of God when he came? See, when we meet Jesus, we meet a person with unquestionable authority. Mere men cannot challenge the Lord's right and ability to teach and rule. And so here's a question from this first point. Do you question or do you recognize Jesus' authority in your life? Do you question or do you recognize and accept Jesus' authority in your life? Which brings us to the second point here. You cannot ultimately refuse his authority. That's the point in verses 9 to 18. The Lord turns from the religious leaders and he begins in verse 9 to address the people. He tells a story about a man who planted a vineyard 
and then rented it to some tenants and then went away for a long time. But while he was away, he sent some servants. And the story goes, he sent three different servants back to get some of the fruit from the vineyard. It was his vineyard. He owned it. He had a right to the proceeds from it. But the tenants, who are merely renters, who are merely stewards, they beat the servants. They treat the servants shamefully. And the text says they send the servants back empty-handed, each one of them. Now the story goes on. The owner of the vineyard says, what will I do? Now, when he says that, he's not scratching his head in puzzlement. He is, I, meant, I think we're meant to understand, he is persevering with the tenants. He's demonstrating patience with the tenants. And he says this, this is what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. And he says, maybe they will hear him. And this decision to send his beloved son, he's not only continuing in patience and perseverance, he is, in effect, giving to the tenants what he loves most. He is communicating affection and hope in this gesture. For they were to receive his son and respect his son's authority over the vineyard as a proxy for his father's ownership of the vineyard. They would be submitting to the owner's authority and receiving the owner's love. Now the parable isn't hard to break down, is it? The owner represents God. All of this world belongs to God, and particular God's covenant people, Israel. The tenants represent uh, the, the religious leaders of Israel, those who have been entrusted with stewarding God's people in its absence until he comes. The, the servants that are sent back are the prophets that God has sent from age to age to proclaim to Israel the, the word of God and to call Israel to live according to the word of God and the Son is the Son of God. It's Jesus Christ, whom God sends to Israel after their long history of abusing and rejecting and mistreating prophets, and God sends his Son with that heart of love. Maybe they will receive my Son. Maybe they'll see in, in giving my one and only beloved son that I am giving to them my heart. I am giving to them my affection, my love. I'm giving to them my greatest possession, as it were. I'm giving to them myself that they might know love and authority go together when used well. And Jesus tells this story and he relays it to the people and he gives us the point down around verse 14. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Now, sometimes you just have to keep reading a sentence in the scripture and you just got to ask yourself, does this make any sense? I mean, these fools crazy. How was that supposed to work? The owner just sent his son, I tell you what, let's kill the son and then he'll make us heirs. No, what? Sin is irrational. And this lust for authority is irrational. And so they, they purpose to kill the son, to kill the owner's expression of love. And notice in verse 13, Jesus comes down to the question. We're meant to feel this question. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? They've killed all the servants and now they've, or they've beaten all the servants and now they've killed the son. 
The Father has sent us all the prophets to give us his word, and now he sent his son. What will they do? What will the Father do to those who so treat the Son? Verse 16 makes perfect sense in this story, doesn't it? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to others. You see, beloved, no one can safely reject the Father's prophets or the Father's Son, Jesus Christ. No one can do that safely. The Bible writers ask this question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 3, 3, John 2, verse 3. The answer is we will not. We will be destroyed. So if you understand that these tenants deserve this judgment, then you understand something about the justice of God in judging sinners. I mean, if with just common sense we understand verse 16, to be right, the owner to be acting rightly against the tenants, then with common sense, we understand the rightness of God in judging sinners. For we are those tenants. We are those who've rebelled against his authority. It is natural and right. And with God, it is perfectly holy and just that he should judge us. But nobody in this story We'll admit this so clearly. Notice the people's reaction in verse 16. When they heard this, they said, surely not. As if if they understand the point of the parable, but they refuse to accept it, don't they? The moral logic of the parable is clear, but they're trying to refuse it. Why would someone not believe this? The only answer I can think of is entitlement and privilege. That's what's bound up in that surely not. Religious entitlement and privilege. They think the kingdom is their right and not a gift. They still can't see how much like the tenants they really are. They are right then denying the king's authority over them much the way the tenants in the story are denying it in the story. Right in that very moment of saying surely not. I love verse 17. I love what it teaches us about the boldness and seriousness of our our Lord when it says this, but he looked directly at them and said. You get the sense that the Son of God is not playing any games. He's locking eyes with them. And in, in any authority contest, the Lord does not back down. He does not shy away. He leans in and he locks eyes. And this time, rather than tell a parable, the Lord quotes the scripture. You see it there? The the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He asked them if they know the meaning of this text found in Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118. I know some of y'all thought Bob Marley made that up. No, that's the Bible. The cornerstone is is used in building a building to make sure the foundation is level and the, and the building is built structurally sound. Get the cornerstone off and the, and the rest of the building is going to be off. So this one stone is essential to the entire structure. And the Lord was speaking of himself. So Acts chapter 4, verse 11. We read there in Peter's preaching, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. The entire building of God's kingdom is built on the shoulders and back 
of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Verse 18 teaches us if, that, if we fall on that stone by rejecting him, or if that stone falls on us in judgment, then we will be broken into pieces or crushed beneath its judgment. That's what it's like to reject Christ. To break yourself against the side of a mountain. Or to have that mountain fall and crush My friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, the point of what I'm saying is that Jesus Christ is essential. It cannot be set aside. There's no way to safely and soundly build your life apart from him. There's no way to enter God's vineyard without him. You you cannot stumble or fall on this stone and be well. The only safe way to live is to stand on the stone. To make it the foundation of your life. And you do that by believing the gospel we were talking about a moment ago. And following Jesus as your Lord with all authority over you. If you'd like to know more about what that's like and how to do that. This is why we exist as a church. Talk to any of the persons you've seen up front here today. Or the Christian friend who brought you. We'd like nothing more than to help you understand. Why God's authority is a loving authority. And leads to the blessing of your life. And church, this cornerstone is the foundation of our entire existence. Without Christ as a chief cornerstone, there is no building. There is no ARC. And this is why the New Testament writers also quote this very text. So Peter tells us, or Ephesians tells us in chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What does this mean for us? Well, it means there's no way for us to be a church without Christ being the cornerstone. Everything we do must come back to and grow out of who Jesus is. If we're going to switch metaphors, he's the head to the body. Without the head, we, well, we wander, we're lost, and we're lifeless. All the authority that's ever exercised in this church must be authority that Jesus himself has delegated in his word. An elder with a, with a closed Bible is an elder with no authority. All right? We only have influence in your life insofar as we can say, thus saith the Lord. Uh, the authority does not come from the office. The authority comes from the Lord himself who delegates, who administers his own authority through the office. You are under no obligation to follow Pastor Thabiti or Pastor Matt. Or Pastor Jeremy. Or should we call Pastor Jahil and Pastor Andrew? You're under no authority to follow them or us in and of ourselves as if we have some authority. That's always going to be dangerous for you, beloved. That will always tend in a sinful world with sinful men toward abuse. No, your call is to follow Christ and to follow us as we follow Christ. And you know we follow Christ if we show it to you in the book, right? I don't want you to ever be confused about that. I don't want you to ever be confused about that. If you hear someone thunder from this pulpit, make sure that thundering, that rumbling, grows right up out of the book. If you hear someone wanting to bind your conscience to obey something, make sure they are binding your conscience to God's word and not their opinion or preference, right? That will be for your blessing. That will be for your freedom and your joy. 
it, it, will, it will be the only way to continue to be a happy church is if really what you're doing is being locked together with Christ rather than your pastors. That's our ambition. Pray for us. Pray for us. I trust that you understand this is a self-interested prayer and it's a good one. Pray that we would be faithful to this and faithful to the Lord. And that we would open the book to you day after day, week after week. And, and what you keep hearing is the voice of Christ through his word. And never, never, beloved, it will be no, it will be no compliment to me to hear you say, we do this because Pastor Thabiti, fill in the blank. Because Pastor said. I know that there are many churches that we've all come from that have, a, a, I take it, a good, proper reverence for pastors. And oftentimes people would speak in shorthand and say, well, pastor said, that's fine there. That's not what we're aiming for here. I'd far rather you say the Bible said, Jesus said, the apostles said. That's what I want you to know. That's how I want us to live. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. Moving to the next point. <laughs> Here's number three. So you cannot question his authority, and you cannot refuse his authority. And number three, you cannot trump his authority. Now, the religious authorities fail in their effort to, to question Jesus. They, they fail so miserably that, that Jesus says the vineyard will be taken away from them and given to others unless they acknowledge the cornerstone. So in verse 19, notice the plot that they hatch. The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Well, duh, right? <laughs> Wherever did they get that idea? But once again, their plots are held up. Notice, because they feared the people. It's striking how often cowardice and murder can be in the same religious heart. It's striking how they are stuck between confession and cowardice. Beloved, sometimes the most simple way to be free is just admit you're wrong. Just admit to the Lord's teaching. But because they're afraid, they recruit some spies in verse 20. These spies, notice, pretended to be sincere, but they were looking for ways that they might catch him in something he said. They're playing a game of theological gotcha. But notice, since their religious authority has been destroyed, they, they now look to use government authority. And now appealing to civil authority. Notice, they plan to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor, the Roman-appointed governor. So we move from the religious court to the secular court now. And notice the, the pretense. They use flattery in verse 21. They're trying to butter the Lord up. We know you're a teacher, man. We know you don't, you don't fear nobody. We know you just be bringing the straight heat. You're just telling the truth, you know. And then they're going to try to slide the trick question in next in verse 22. Is it lawful, tell us, for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Why is that a trick question? Because they know that Caesar and Rome rule Jerusalem. And they rule it with an iron boot. And Caesar will not look favorably on anything that looks like treason. And so if they can get him to say, don't pay taxes to Caesar, they can then charge him with Caesar for treason, right? But they also know that there's, a, there's another sort of stinger in this tale, because if he says to pay taxes, they know then that they can, they can sort of separate him in the favor of the people, because the people are tired of Rome, they're tired of being oppressed, and what they want is a deliverer. 
And so if Jesus comes along and seems to affirm Caesar, then, then they can say to the people, look, he's just a lackey, he's just a flunky, he's just a stand-in for Caesar. He's no, he's no real revolutionary. And so they come with this question that seems to have an either-or, trying to trap him on both sides. And notice what the Lord does. Notice his perceptiveness. Verse 23, he perceived their craftiness. <laughs> the Lord sees right through them. He knows when we're playing games and trying to rig the system like a Cleveland ref. I mean, you know. <laughs> Y'all know where I'm at on that. <laughs> but he gives this answer that threads the needle beautifully. And we don't have time to unpack an entire sort of theology of government authority, but we should at least say two things based on the Lord's response here. He says basically in his response, whose inscription is on the coin? Who's, whose name and picture are on the coin? They answer Caesar. He says, give me that denarius, and I'll tell you what. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and render unto God what is God's. And when he does that, the Lord affirms Caesar's authority, even down to paying taxes. That one's just for my Republican friends. <laughs> the Lord is not an anarchist. We can never justify disobedience to civil authority with appeals to Jesus. So pay your taxes, obey the speed limit, serve jury duty. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Romans chapter 13 tells us there are no Caesars except that God appoints them. Submission to government authority is ultimately submission to God's authority. But there's something else we should say here. The Lord does not equate Caesar's authority with God's authority. There are some things that belong to Caesar. And there are some things that belong only to God. Caesar may put his face and his name on what is his, but this is my father's world. What Caesar has, God gave to him. What belongs to God, Caesar can never claim or take. The higher authority, the highest authority is God's authority. Yes, taxes belong to Caesar, but hearts and souls belong to God. God can demand, us, demand of us things that Caesar could never, never rightfully demand, like worship. And the Caesars did. They, they promoted emperor worship. They taught that they were deities, in fact. But no, no, no. God would never have you bow to another. And he will never share his glory with another. Some things belong only to God. And we know this intuitively, don't we? That's why in verse 26, they simply marveled at his answer and became silent. You cannot trump the Lord's authority. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. And every authority that exists, he created. Now notice number four, you cannot trivialize his authority either. That's what we see in verses 27 to 24. The, the conservative religious leaders have approached Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief elders, and they have all failed. But now in verse 27, what we would call the, the liberal religious leaders take their turn. The Sadducees were a group of Jewish people who, notice there in the text, deny there is a resurrection. The Sadducees are kind of the opposition party to the Pharisees. They argue with each other all the time, but they are united in this one thing, opposing Jesus. So they don't care who's in authority between the two of them, as long as it's one of them. 
And here comes Jesus, and they cannot suffer the idea that he might, he might actually reign. So they come along to test the Lord as well. The, the Pharisees tried to question Jesus on the grounds of religious authority and on the grounds of civil authority. But notice now the Sadducees take a different tack. They decide to challenge Jesus on the ground of scriptural authority. Notice what they do. Verses 28 to 33. They asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Before I comment on what they're doing with the Bible here, can I just comment briefly on what they're doing with women here? I think we ought to be careful of making women the kind of object of theological ping pong and battle. I mean, there's something here that I find, I don't know about you, maybe this is too much of Pastor T's sensibility, but there's something here that I find oddly dismissive of the, the sort of pain and the sexuality and the intimacy and the bereft and grief of this woman. Even in an imaginary hypothetical, she had seven husbands. They all died. She's childless. And it's just a theological question. And beloved, our theological questions are never just theological questions. Our theological questions come home in people's lives. And how we talk about these things and think about these things matter for how we portray people and then how we engage people sometimes. So that's free. That's an aside. But look at what they do with the scripture. Well, first, they, they, they refer to Moses. Moses wrote for us. So they, they have some notion of, of the Bible and of the scripture, and they're, they're referring to that here. And the scenario itself builds upon a law that is in the books of Moses, the, the kinsman redeemer law, which was meant, in fact, to protect widows. It is how they have described it here. If a, if a woman's husband dies, then the next of kin has a responsibility for making sure in that culture she's not without security and income and family by this, by this, this, this marriage here. But they take that and make it really elastic, and they, they try to run it out to some infinite, absurd idea. She's got seven men that she's had to marry, seven brothers, and none of them have had children with her, and they all die. She outlives them all. And the question is, in an effort to sort of undermine the idea of the resurrection, the question is, whose wife is she in heaven? It's the kind of Bible games people play when they don't believe the Bible. Notice our Lord responds in three basic points. Number one, he tells them that they don't understand the differences between this age and that age, between earth and heaven. That's in verses 34 and 36. There are tremendous differences between what happens on earth, beloved, and what happens on heaven, in heaven. We should never have the idea that heaven is like this life, only better and longer. No, there are some significant differences that, that can't be reconciled. For example, marriage is only an earthly institution. There is no marriage in heaven. You marry till death do you part because when death do you part, you part it. <laughs> That's it. Incidentally, this is why sanctified singleness is ultimately better than discontent marriage. 
They'll get that on the way home, Peter. When we tear ourselves up about marrying, we're crushing this temporary life with dreams of a temporary relationship. I think the reality of heaven where there is no marriage, where, where all the saints are married to Christ, and so therefore there are no imperfect grooms, but only the, the great bridegroom himself. The reality, reality of that marriage is meant, I think, to still us against the temptations toward uh, discontent and the temptations toward the, idolat- the idolizing of marriage in this life. Oh, marriage in this life is a wonderful thing. It's a blessed thing. It's temporary, beloved. There's a life coming that is so categorically different and better that not even marriage makes sense in it. And he's saying, you don't know this age from that age. That age to come, it's not like this world, only better. It's different. And notice something else here. The second thing he says to him that, is that the Lord tells him that they don't understand the Bible's teaching about the resurrection. That's what it gets to in verses 37 and 34. Notice that he quotes the same author, Moses, and it reminds him of one of those passages in the Jewish Torah that that every Jewish person would have known and would have accepted as foundational to who God is. It's when Moses meets God in the burning bush. You remember that? The Lord shows up in this bush that's on fire but isn't being consumed, and he speaks from that bush, and he commissions Moses to be a prophet, to go back into Egypt and to lead his people out of Egypt. And Moses asked an important question. He says, now, now, when I get there and I see the people, who should I tell them sent me? And the voice comes from the bush. Tell them that the I am sent me, sent you. The self-existent one. The always existing one. The I am that I am. And tell them that I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You see, the self-existing, always living one is the God of the patriarchs who all of Israel believe were with God. And so he's saying here, listen, in that very text where God tells you his name is proof of the resurrection. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are with the ever-living, never-dying one. You don't understand the nature of God. Lord Jesus reads the Bible so closely and carefully. I mean, no no Jewish person would deny that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were with God. And the present tense nature of that text requires belief in the resurrection. He's down to to the tense, the verb tense. And investing authority and doctrine in the verb tense. He's reading closely. And that's why the Pharisees, the Sadducees ultimately say, yeah, that's a good good answer, Doc. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. I'm good, man. I'm done. I'm done. And the Lord shuts him up. But then he's not done. Notice the third thing the Lord reveals, the deep truth about David's true son in verses 41 to 44. He's already shut the Sadducees up. Now he's going to shut them down. They're done with their questions, but the Lord has one more for them. Verse 41, how can you say that the Christ is David's son? I imagine the looks are confused because everybody knows that God has promised to David a son that would rule on his throne in a kingdom forever. Of course the Messiah is is David's son. Whose else son would he be? That was Judaism 101. Then the Lord takes them to the Psalms. Notice there he says they were written by David. We'll come back to that in a moment. 
It says, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus helps them understand that King David was eavesdropping on a divine conversation. The first Lord is the Father, Yahweh. He spoke to the second Lord, the Son, Adonai. And he told the second Lord to sit with him in the place of honor at his right hand until all of the second Lord's enemies were made his footstool, until all of heaven and earth are put beneath his feet. And Jesus says, man, how you interpret that? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. If David calls the Messiah Lord, how can he be in that sense his son? David's true son is none other than the Lord himself. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity who sat in eternity past with God the Father and counseled together and decided that they would so wrap up things in such a way that even his enemies would be made to be something he rests his feet on. That all of creation would be so redeemed and so consummated and so brought together again back under his rule that it would be his footstool. That David's son is no mere man. He's the God-man. He's the Lord who sat with the Lord and sits even now enthroned at his right hand in the heavens until all of his enemies, death, Satan, and all of his angels are beneath his feet under his rule. It's a picture of authority, isn't it? Jesus says, you want to undermine scriptural authority? Let me take you to the scripture and show you once again my authority. I reign and will reign until all my enemies are made my footstool. That's David's true son. And when we come to the Bible, here's the question. Do we approach it with a sense of the authority that it really has? Is it a book of curiosities and debatable doctrines? Or does it appear to us a book of power and control because it comes from the mouth of God. Before we use the Bible, quote-unquote, we must submit to the Bible. We must recognize its authority in our lives because it, it comes from God. It is breathed out by God. And here's the thing, beloved. When we get to know Jesus, we find out that the Lord really does honor the prophets. From John the Baptist in verse 4 all the way back to Moses in verse 37. And because he honors the prophets that he himself has sent, he honors the scripture that he sent through them. Did you notice how the Lord quoted the scripture throughout this chapter? You see it there in verses 17 and 18. Again in verses 37 and 38. That portion from the Psalms in verses 41 to 44. Even the parable he told about the owner of the vineyard really is an illustration of the biblical text about the chief cornerstone. The parable was meant to serve the Bible, not the Bible to serve the parable. This is why our preaching shouldn't be filled with a bunch of stories unless they're illustrating the Bible that we're explaining. Right? You notice how he stands on the scripture, even when it's being attacked. 
The Sadducees don't make him tremble because they want to elaborate some little story and, and undermine the, the Scripture. He doesn't tremble in that. He stands on the Bible's authority. You notice how he gives attention to the details of the Bible for meaning, down to the verb tense. He trusts, the Lord does, the Bible's accuracy and authority even when others are mocking it. He believes all of the Bible. In this chapter, he's quoted from the law, from the prophets like Isaiah, and from the Psalms, the writings. He believes that Moses really did write the law, despite what our own liberal scholars tell us today. He believes that Isaiah is one book, despite those same liberal scholars telling us there's an Isaiah and a Deutero-Isaiah, a second Isaiah. He believes that David wrote the Psalms. And he doesn't flinch to say it at all. See, Jesus believes the Bible is true and trustworthy. He believes the Bible reveals what heaven and God are like. He does not trust another authority apart from the Bible. And we will never know Jesus well until we know our Bibles well and approach it the way he did. If you would get to know Jesus, get to know your Bible. Which brings us to our final point. You cannot question his authority. You cannot refuse it. You cannot trump his authority. And you can't undermine it. Number five, you cannot avoid it. The Lord Jesus' authority cannot be questioned, as we said, and it can't be avoided. Many people live as though Jesus did not exist. Even among those who know his name and know about his gospel, many of those will go on as if what he says has no bearing upon their lives. Many live as if they will never have to respond to the Lord's authority. They could not be more wrong. Look at verses 45 to 47. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Luke 20 began with Jesus preaching the good news or the gospel in the temple. It ends with Jesus preaching the bad news. The good news does not appear good until a person really acknowledges the bad news. The scribes put on religious shows. They want to look holy, but they are pretending even when they pray. The scribes, along with all religious hypocrites in positions of religious authority, notice what Jesus says in that last verse, they receive the greater condemnation. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that those who teach receive the stricter judgment. In other words, the hottest parts of hell are reserved for hypocritical religious leaders. The false minister will not escape the searing authority of God's final judgment. They cannot avoid it. And though the leaders received a greater condemnation, there remains a condemnation for everyone who lives in sin and ignores Jesus as Lord. One day, you too, if that's you, will come before his throne on the day of judgment. If you have bowed before his authority and followed him in faith, praise be to God, you will not be condemned. There will be no charge brought against you that can stand. For Christ is your righteousness, and his blood does atone for all your sins. You will not be put to shame. 
you will serve him in his kingdom and know the power of his resurrection. But if you have stiffened your neck and hardened your heart, you will hear the final verdict, guilty. You will hear God, the judge, sentence you to condemnation in hell. There will be no escape. The only escape is the gospel. Christ died to pay the penalty for your sins and mine so we would not have to serve an eternal life sentence in hell. He rose from the grave to defeat death itself and to bring us righteousness through faith in him. All who trust in him live free with God as they were meant to. And this morning, beloved, I want you to know that all of us were meant to live in such freedom, in such love, with this God. All it requires is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true son of David, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Believe in him. Come under his authority. Experience his love. Live forever in his presence. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we give you praise that you have made a way of escape from your wrath. It's not a loophole. It's not a trick. It's not some way of getting by or getting hooked up without fulfilling the demands of your justice. No, you've made a way of escape that satisfies all of your judgment, that satisfies all of your righteous demands, and that way of escape is your son, whom you have sent to your tenants, whom you have sent to us. And Lord, we pray that all who are under the sound of the gospel would find that way of escape in him would cease from questioning his authority, would, would stop looking to live according to their own way, but would confess their sin, would die to themselves, would trust in Christ, and so live before you with a good conscience and serve you with all of themselves. And we pray that those who have confess Christ outwardly would know him inwardly. That none would be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who put on a pretense and who act religious, who have a form of godliness but deny its power. Let all who name the name of Christ be true. Let none be hypocritical. And let all understand that there's a difference between imperfection and hypocrisy. For you have Lord, covered our imperfections and our sins and our faults with your grace and your blood. You knew that that would be true of us and you redeemed us despite it. But hypocrisy pretends in a way that you despise. Let none be a hypocrite. Let all be true. And let us live, O oh Lord, beneath your authority. And let us proclaim to all that the news of your rule is good news 
Because unlike all human authorities, you rule in perfect love. Let us know the blessing of receiving that love. In Jesus' name, amen.